0: Thank you for... They told me I was loud and I don't need a mic, but I'm not sure. Is that right? We're good? <laughs> um, so thank you for having me. It is such an honor to be here on this panel. I told Professor Kennedy that I had a bit of a confession, that I didn't, and I'm going to make that confession public. Uh, I think it was last year. Was it last year that I was here? Yeah. Last year, I accepted an invitation to come to... Harvard Law School, um, to discuss the uh, U.S. announcement on recognizing uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And I accepted that invitation because I really wanted to meet Professor Kennedy. (laughs) And so he obliged my request for a coffee, and he didn't know who I was and didn't realize I had this book that was uh, where my analytical framework A cornerstone of the analytical framework was based on his tremendous works. And so by the end of our coffee, you know, I made my pitch and I said, hey, by the way, um, I have this book I've written. I'd be so honored if you gave it a read and if you like it, if you would blurb it. And he generously obliged. His name is now on the back of the book, which has made my heart pop and now to be here, so thank you. Thank you so much for that. And that's also just a word to the wise, to the young people in this room, um, just be persistent. The worst that can happen when you can ask is you get a no, and it takes a lot of no's before you get that yes, and nobody ever talks about the no's, they just talk about the yeses. So be as brave as you want. Um, okay, so on to this, this is a journey. This is a journey. Um, I. The seeds, the intellectual seeds of inquiry for for this book were planted while I was in law school, where it was the first time I heard the argument in a student-led debate that we organized at Berkeley Law School um, (laughs) with all three of the Arab students on campus, um, but where we organized a debate on settlement in the West Bank in Gaza. And the the counter-argument immediately made an argument that well, it's not occupied, it's disputed. And I literally thought as a young law student that he made it up. I was like, well, that's silly. But then in, in actual work with a professor who now I count as, as a mentor, and one of my favorite professors, Richard Buxbaum, who is the son of uh, uh, of Holocaust survivors, and who has a great amount of empathy and worked closely with me when I was writing a paper looking at what kinds of claims can we bring under the alien tort statute for Israel's 2002 incursion into Janine, and how those are you know, violations, grave breaches of the Fourth Geneva Convention or Article 49 and thereby tantamount to war crimes, he looked at me and said well, where do you establish that the territory is occupied? And I thought, oh my God, that kid wasn't lying. This is real. And it planted the seed of inquiry of why is it that the international community, the Security Council, um, the General Assembly, even Israel's Supreme Court on many instances has recognized this territory as occupied, and yet there's this discourse of disputed that that I need to engage in. So these were the first you know these were the first seeds of inquiry that were planted. I ended up graduating law school, taking a fellowship for very little money that wasn't even a fraction of the loans to pay off, but I wanted to follow my dream of suing Israeli officials in US federal courts. <laughs> that was the whole reason I did this. I survived three years and took the bar in California and passed the first time because this is what I wanted to do. Um, and we got that chance almost immediately in 2006 when Avi Dichter, who was responsible for the raising of 5,000 homes in Refah, which in the, in, in the south of Gaza in 2005, was in New York as a policy fellow. And the opportunity when Moshe Alon, who was responsible for the bombing of a U.N. compound in southern Lebanon in Qana in 1996 was a fellow in Washington, D.C. We served them both with process, and now we had lawsuits in the southern district of New York and the D.C. district court, and my theory that I had developed with Professor Buxbaum on the alien tort statute was going to come to life, and I was going to vindicate my law school career and surviving it. And... Almost, I think it was less than a year, maybe six months later, both suits were dismissed on non-just disability disability grounds. One, for um, violating the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And here I imagine I can speak in legalese. I don't have to translate this, right? Finally, I'm in a... i am in I do. Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, basically that the lawsuit against an alleged Israeli war criminal was tantamount to a lawsuit against Israel. It's not going to be contemplated. There's no not going to be contemplated in U.S. courts. You can only bring suits against other states who, are, who the State Department has designated as state sponsors of terror, so otherwise known as the Platau Amendment. And the suit against Avi Dichter was dismissed because it was a political question, which means that it is a case better suited for another branch of government, the legislative or the executive, but not the judiciary. So now my dreams are dashed. And like any... Um, fervent legal advocate, I'm studying now other jurisdictions. Because surely if we went to the Ninth Circuit, things would be different with a different panel of uh, judges. And in the course of that research, what I found was something really strange. That the same arguments that were used to dismiss these cases against Dichter and Ya'alon were not sustained in similar cases against Chinese officials, Guatemalan officials, Paraguayan officials, Serbian officials, Filipino officials, and the list goes on and on. And so I looked at that and thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if I controlled for the identity of the claimant and the identity of the defendant? And so th- these, just for their identities. And when I did that, I was able to demonstrate bias in U.S. federal courts when Arab claimants brought cases alleging war crimes against Israeli officials and that became my first law review article. I still wasn't set on the academy, right? I want to be a fighter. So I stayed in the trenches and kept at it. Then I went to to the United Nations as a legal advocate, went to Congress as legal counsel for a committee, I went on a fact-finding mission to Gaza in 2009 to study the effects of Operation Cast Lead to come back and lobby the State Department and other uh, branches of government as well as missions at the United Nations to basically impose weapons sanctions, violation of the U.S. Arms Export Control Act. I mean, I could tell you a number of things and attempts and, and, and trials and errors and frustrations that all led me to the same dead end, which was that politics created a formidable obstacle for these claims that we were making in international law and and heightened that uh, seed of critical inquiry that was planted in me in law school, which is, what is the relationship between law and politics? And secondly, for my purposes, what does that relationship tell us about the struggle for Palestinian freedom? the culmination of of my studying that question and trying to answer that is justice for some on the question of Palestine. So in short, let me tell you what the answers to those, how I answer those briefly, and then I'll turn it over to Professor Kennedy, who I'm so excited to be in conversation with. Um, I answer in short that the law is politics, that the law is politics, but I'm not a realist on this, I'm not a pessimist. That where I believe that the law is a fiction. I do believe that the law is serving a function, even if it does not have the capacity to command state behavior or to punish state transgressions. But I'm clearly also um, not, uh, you know, an idealist about the law, where it has its own meaning and it can be studied like a science outside of a particular context the contrary, I'm somewhere um, closer to the realist, but still believing that the law can can be leveraged for an emancipatory purpose. We've seen that in a number of causes. I certainly show that on how it was leveraged in the cause of Palestine, right? And so the law is politics, but in order to be wielded in the service of progressive causes, it must be um, deployed in the service of a political movement. So I take very much a movement lawyering approach. The law is not going to provide us direction. It can only be a tool that the direction that is provided is provided by political movements. So what I say is I use this analogy to think of it like the sail of a boat. The law is the sail, but on its own, a boat will not move without wind. And politics and political movement, it constitutes that wind and I suggest Pull up the sale when it's going to be useful. Pull down the sale when it's going to be harmful. And create a new sale when possible. Right? And there's going to be critique about this. And some will say that it's, oh, but that's politicizing the law. And that's lawfare. I have a response to that. It's in the book. I'm happy to answer the question posed here or by you as well. But let me move on. What does it have to do with the question of Palestine? So what I show is that in... Um, what I do is I I document this over a 100-year period between 1917 and 2017. And I do that rather than dividing the book into chapters about different parts of law, so a chapter on occupation law, a chapter on laws of war, a chapter on self-determination, where one of my readers actually, um, actually recommended that I do that, and I had to resist, right? That that's not what I wanted to do for two reasons because I am arguing that it's, that the meaning of the law can change over time and space depending on the historical context. So I'm less interested in studying the law itself and more interested in studying the, the historical context that's changing the meaning of the law over time. And we certainly see that with the principle of self-determination first being a tool of colonial penetration in the aftermath of the First World War and then becoming uh, tantamount to national independence of colonized peoples by 1960 in the passage of UN General Assembly Resolution 1514 condemning colonialism as a system of governance. We also show that in 242 and, and otherwise. The other reason that I I wanted to span a 100-year arc is because the thing that I was saying earlier, that even if the law doesn't have the capacity to command behavior or to punish transgressions, it's doing other work. The other work that it's doing and that I show that it's doing is it's also changing and, and altering and impacting the diplomatic response to the question of Palestine as well as the remedies that we imagine for it. And so I wanted by the end of it to show how the relationship between law and politics also narrates a story about uh, the history of the question of Palestine. So that's what I do in the book. I divide it into five junctures. Um, Each juncture is precipitated by a serious confrontation that creates an opportunity to reinterpret the law, to reimagine it, where where it becomes a site of contest that Palestinians and Israelis can enter into. So I mark 1917 as the first juncture through 1966, the end of the martial law order against the Palestinian citizens of Israel. This is 50 years. It's half of the time span of the book, and it's the background chapter. Then, and the reason that 1917 is so important is because that's where I mark where Palestine becomes a state of exception um, as a form under the sovereign exception, which I think you might ask me about, so I won't say more on that. But that's going to be a really important moment, not necessarily in 1917, but when the Balfour Declaration is incorporated verbatim into the preambular text of the Palestine Mandate in 1922. That's the moment. The next juncture is the 1967 war, then the 1973 war, then 1987, the Palestinian uprising that leads and culminates in the Oslo Accords, then 2000, what's known as the Second Palestinian Intifada or the Al-Aqsa Intifada. I don't like either moniker, but that's how they're known, so I'll refer to them as such. And from 2000, when that starts, I then trace, um, I trace the seeds planted in 2000 to 2017 to show how Israel's legal advisors and judiciary and, and statespersons then used um, legal work, to borrow from Professor Kennedy, used legal work in order to change the relationship to Palestinians from occupation to all-out warfare, which is the current condition in the state that we're in right now. I end the book by thinking about the future, and to think about the future I borrow from Afrofuturism in order to think about our our possibilities for moving forward in, in this way where there is no optimal past to return to. There are only optimal futures to shape. What are those optimal futures? And what is the work of radical imagination that are necessary in order to reach them? So at that, thank you so much, and I look forward to the discussion.
1: So I'm going to interview you. Yes. (laughs) Um, I have a bunch of questions. But before I start with the questions, I think I should ask, how many of you are law students? How many of you are not law students? Great. OK, so a massive law student. You really were right that you can treat it as a legally informed audience. Um, so my my here, they're going to be, I guess, my first question is about, what it means to be an activist lawyer. Uh, My second question is about the particular accomplishments of Palestinian lawyers during the period of the creation of the international law doctrines about armed resistance in the colonial or post-colonial or context. Um, So that's about a specific event in the history of public international law, which you write about in the book in a way that is just, I thought, was fascinating. Um, Third question uh, will be about the relationship between um, in your understanding when you're talking about the significance of political movement as the ally or other side of the enterprise of activist lawyering, what is your position about the significance of armed struggle versus other forms of struggle, (laughs) the question of violence in the political movements that you're talking about? Um, as allied with activist lawyers. And the fourth question is, actually more concretely, what are the implications of the book for how Americans who are committed (laughs) in one way or the other to engagement with these issues ought to understand the current situation? So you just gave us a teaser at the end of your talk, a pure teaser, so now maybe you'll deliver whatever it is was in the back of your mind. So those are four different questions. I want to actually begin with a comment, which is basically I blurbed the book, but let me blurb it again. I mean, this book is really an amazing one. It has many unusual characteristics, and you really didn't allude to most of them because there's so many things that are fascinating about it. One thing is if you're at all a junkie on the history of peace negotiations, international law, the international diplomacy aspect of it, it has a lot of what could be called dirt in it. That is, it's it's got um, inside stories of the ways in which it went down. It has a, this is before the interview, this is just selling a few other things. One of the things that makes it fascinating is it has an extremely serious, ruthless critique of the PLO and the Palestinian establishment so-called representatives of the Palestinian people. So critique, I mean, from the point of view of leftists interested in the struggle, this is not the ritual, everybody on our side is good, and everyone on the other side is bad, and therefore we always have to pretend that the other people on our side, in some sense, are blameless. It's the most subtle and actually cutting critique that I've read of what happened to the movement. Mm -hmm. So for us, for me as an American outsider reader, but if you're a young person who is entering into discussions of it now, it actually has amazing stuff. Also, an analysis of Camp David of the Clinton effort to settle it and why it didn't work, which is a very skillful refutation of the Zionist claim that Arafat and the Palestinians screwed up the one good chance that anyone ever had for peace. So it's a very careful step-by-step insiderish account of how that's just not right. It's really fascinating, great. Um, and there's more. But let, let me now say the thing about it that I found not, this wasn't surprising. It was just thrilling. So I am a legal theory guy as well as a supporter. And I think of myself as a person who's an activist thinker about legal possibilities. But this book appeals to me because it's also a theory book. The first chapter engages in a completely reader-accessible way with the main questions about how we should understand law in the very abstract and general way in its relationship to politics, as Noura said. So that chapter is a contribution to the very long jurisprudential disputes about the relationship between law and politics, the autonomy of law, its relation to social forces, and all that stuff. So it's not just an activist lawyer book. It is an amazing. It's not just a history book of the conflict. It's also a contribution as to how lawyers ought to think about themselves as lawyers in law, embedded in the practices of law and theorizing law. So it's a theory book, as well as a history book and a political intervention. Wow, so that's, it's amazing Now, why do I like it? I like it because I agree with so much of it So let's face it (laughs) Specifically and concretely You take millions of (laughs) positions Which you don't get them from me You get a little bit from me But the positions don't come from me So why aren't there more people Who believe these things that we believe in Is a very (laughs) strong reaction that I have to the book Uh, So let me begin with and ask you about one of them, which is this. You, you introduced this in several different ways. My impression of activist lawyers, and uh, this might be true of quite a few of you in the room who are law students, who are thinking in terms of activist lawyers, is that there are two, it could be said, very general orientations. And Nora expressed one. <coughs> but it's only one. And to my mind, more law students have another one, and one you mentioned, which is the idea that there is some sense is that the law is an almost sacred repository of the possibilities of human justice, not just in the sense that it's a potential tool you could use to achieve results that you decide were just, but that there's an element of imminent justice or justice that's built into the being of law that, as a law student, you put yourself in relationship to. Now, that's I stated it very strongly, and you stated the other position pretty strongly. The law is just a sale. To say that is to say, Look, it's used for good, it's used for bad. It changes and morphs over time. It can be crucial, as you say, to an apartheid or a fascist regime, so we shouldn't fetishize law. But if we're not going to fetishize it, what is the appropriate attitude towards it? is it really how instrumental are you you don't even
0: understand i can sit here if he wanted to continue further i wasn't gonna stop i was like go ahead this is so exciting i i spent three years writing this 15 year journey and three years writing so this is a wonderful outcome (laughs) let me answer the question though um so i when i went to law school i went because i i fetishized the law I was frustrated with the limits of activism and changing things on the ground. And I, you know, at 21, as I'm applying to law school, and I also suggest to all my students now to take some gap years, um, but when I was applying, I believed that all we needed to do was use the law better and to use it more strategically. And then we'll just share it with a judge who has to make the decision based on facts and law without bias. And we're going to get free, right? Yeah, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. And so, you know, I'm, I, I, a lot of my experiences inform how I learned that the hard way. But the other thing and, and what I draw here um, from... Uh, Professor Kennedy's work is this idea of legal work and the idea that, you know, it's this, also this critical legal idea that the law itself is indeterminate, that it doesn't even have a core meaning because it must be adjudicated. First of all, it's going to be interpreted by the lawyers who are shaping it to suit their clients' needs. So if it, was just, if it just had a meaning that we could understand, we wouldn't need lawyers, we would just need literate people, right? But we need lawyers. To be able to craft the law, to be able to make the arguments at the, about the appropriate precedents, about the appropriate analogies, about the appropriate jurisdiction in order to let it, allow it to have the outcome we want it to have, then it has to be subject to some judicial interpretation. And we don 't know the bias that's happening there, and that 's why right we, I, we we got dismissed in the d c district Court and the Southern District of New York, and I was looking at the ninth district in order to find a different answer to that question so again, there, um, there's going to be judicial interpretation and bias that we also understand and recognize, and so the, all of those things. And then when it's applied, what gets applied and how it gets implemented is also going to be subject to a whole host of factors about what is the context, what, what, what rulings, right? What ICC rulings actually get enforced and what ICC rulings are, or, or jurisdictions are dismissed. for? Anyways, that's another issue about Afghanistan and the recent dismissal of, in the preliminary investigation. We won't go there. Let me stay on then why movement lawyering. So the reason that I do firmly believe that this is about movement lawyering is because the law in itself is constitutive, one, of sordid origins, especially if we're talking about international law. It basically begins as a settled law in order to regulate the relationship between imperial powers that are navigating how to expand their dominion. Number one, it's used to justify the plunder and the murder of indigenous people by first recognizing their humanity and then justifying why they can be killed in large numbers. So the origins of international law as an imperial, um, uh, you know, as an imperial Euro- European order strictly already makes somebody, you know, very uncomfortable with it. And so then the next reaction, if that's the case, and if law is politics, and if the powerful get to do what they want, then why are we even using the law? Doesn't that legitimate it? And here's where I push back and say, we can't afford to say that. We can't afford to say that, because law is like every other structural asymmetry that we exist in, economic, military, political, and otherwise. And so to basically tell people who are struggling for freedom, don't use the law, because it, it, it inheres a, structure, you know, a structural power imbalance, is to tell them, well, don't use the tools that may be available to you. And so that's why, to balance that out, I move to the movement work. And what movement lawyers say, this is the difference, this is how I define myself as a movement attorney. A movement attorney will walk into a room, look at the people in this room, and ask you, hey, What do you want? How do you define justice? How do you define freedom? What does that look like? And then we'll go back and think, okay, now what can I do with the law in order to advance what it is you're working for? You're defining it for me. A more traditional attorney will basically say, well, here's what the law says and here are the options available to you. So what are the best ways forward, right? And looking for a strictly a legal avenue and a legal intervention, and so that's how I would describe myself as an activist, Good. advocate. You want me to stop? I want okay. you to stop. Sure. That's
1: exactly what. Sure. Great. great. Sure. So the next question is related. <laughs> <laughs> the next question is related, but it may take a jump. So, a problem for public international law, from the moment of the beginning of decolonization, was how to deal with national liberation movements so we have colonization we have decolonization gets going as a process of violent resistance to colonial powers all over the world there is no part of the world where it doesn't begin to happen. You can say it begins a very long time ago, at least in the late 19th century, in resistance to the initial colonization process, but decolonization really doesn't get going until World War II as a violently impelled national world process. So in the legal conceptualization of the people doing the resistance to the colonial powers struggling for a national independence, what do you think the contribution of the Palestinian lawyers was?
0: This is a really good question, and I'm going to divide it into two parts. Sounds so, like
1: you anticipated the question. I didn't <laughs> or exactly sounds catch like- you unaware.
0: <laughs> Let me divide it into two parts, because... The, the short answer is, is that Palestinians played a very central role, but not in the legal thinking on the question, and yet still played a very central role. So that's why I wanna divide it into two parts. One is to start by saying, and here I want to emphasize, here I want to emphasize a really significant turn in international law of when it actually becomes a law of the colonized people. And this is in the aftermath of the Second World War. This is in the aftermath of the beginning of what becomes armed liberation struggles against colonialism. And in an attempt to throw off the yoke of colonial and imperial domination and to say once and for all, there is nothing civilizing about this governance structure. You're bringing plumbing, you're, you're, this is, right, colonial discourse, but we are bringing plumbing and building schools and, um, you know, a lot, increasing uh, maternal birth rates, and so this is good what we're doing for the brown and black people, right? And so this is a struggle that basically says, no, 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 this is a form of, of domination and our pathway to freedom is through national independence which is is this idea, and this crystallizes as um, national liberation, our movements, as newly independent states, as um, third world leaders consolidate their thinking um, in 1959 in Bandung and later in the non-aligned movement and later in the group of 77 in trying to create a new world order and they see the United Nations as a site of struggle. So this is what Abulsi in the book, um, who was a PLO cadre. Um, and, and here, let me divert. Don't be mad, I'll get back, I promise. Um, but uh, Professor Kennedy referred to the dirt that I'm unearthing and different stories that I'm telling. The reason that I do that and how I do that is because as most people who are marginalized, our history is not written by us. So the archives are not available to be able to tell our history right? In order to retell the stories I want to tell, I couldn't go to sources that were available. I had to go to the living sources to conduct interviews, to reconstruct stories and create a new Palestinian archive that didn't exist. So there's also something about emancipatory knowledge production and the relationship between knowledge and power and and this work that's happening as well. And I'm not... You know, I'm not shy about it, I'm very proud of it, I'm very explicit about it, right? Because for anybody to then say, but as a scholar you should be objective, there is no objectivity. There is no objectivity. All of it is tainted with a particular approach and a desire um, and, and who you are, what you're constitutive of as you approach the question. Which is not to say that I wasn't challenged very much throughout this uh, process as well, including in this chapter that um, we're, we're now traversing. But as I was saying, I interviewed Karman Abulsi, and um, she explains to me that the PLO cadre saw the United Nations not just as a place of diplomacy, but basically as another terrain of the fight. Just like the guerrilla warfare that was happening internationally, here was another terrain of the fight. And they shook things up. This was third world revolt that literally took the reins of the UN General Assembly, where they now constituted an automatic majority. They couldn't overcome the Security Council and the five permanent voting members of the Security Council, but they could use their automatic majority in order to create new laws, which is what they did. And under the leadership of Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who is the foreign minister of Algeria, who becomes the General Assembly president in the aftermath of Algeria's independence after shaking off uh, 132 years of French um, settler colonization, right? They actually change the rules in the United Nations in order to unseat South Africa for its apartheid practices, even against the wishes of three permanent members in the Security Council, the United Nations, uh, United States, the British, and the French. So this is a revolutionary moment even at the UN. It's in this context, it's in this context that the story of, of violence and the legitimacy of violence is being debated. And the debate is one that we might find familiar today about who can use force, when is it legitimate, when is it not legitimate, right? So it has echoes, but it was different. It was different, and at this time, because of the amount of force being used by a majority of the world's population, and especially on the African continent, it was not so easy to dismiss it as criminal and terroristic from the outset. And instead, studies at the United Nations came to the conclusion that yes, they're using force, but that there's a root cause that they're fighting against, right, which is something uh, part of, of uh, you know, how we create oppression is to remove context. And so they were actually studying context. Then, and this is a backstory also in my interviews with George Abisab, who was um, head rep- a- Egyptian jurist, who was representing the G77 and becomes the drafter of the first draft of uh, what becomes the additional protocols and the ICRC or the Red Cross.
1: One, Just one defining word for that. Yeah. One step too quick. Sure. What is the protocols? What is the... I'm going to get to that. I was just what teasing
0: was, going uh, backwards. Uh, yeah, there it is. They are. Yeah. It's like it's making a movie. You know, I give you a little flash. Uh, We're going to go back.
1: But I think actually yeah, it is just... Sorry. Yeah, I don't
0: know. I'm going to... I promise. I'm going to tell you. Okay. So... Um, The Red Cross saw it as their primary jurisdiction to be able to define what is the humanitarian way to fight war, okay? The G77 decides to draft a paper that suggests that there should be regulation for guerrilla fighters, okay? The Red Cross is annoyed and says, no, we want to do this, and basically set up a diplomatic process that lasts between 1974 and 1977 that basically creates new laws of war to regulate irregular combat or non-conventional warfare, between states and non-state actors. Those are the first additional protocol to the Geneva Convention, which regulates um, international armed conflict, what would be tantamount to that, and then the second additional protocol, which is going to regulate non-international armed conflict, what we know as civil war, all right? Those two additional protocols basically elevated the status of guerrillas from illegitimate... Uh, fighters, to combatants, to combatants whose use of force can be regulated. They could be targeted, and they have the right to kill, and it wouldn't be murder, right? So this changes the entire landscape. Obviously, not every country is agreeing with it. At the same time, South Africa sentences Nelson Mandela to life, Because they call him a terrorist. So not everybody is necessarily in compliance. Israel and the United States immediately say, not us. And they still are not signatories to this. And so the PLO is a central player. It gets to be a part of the negotiating process between 1974 and 1977. But to answer the question, what is their role exactly? They don't offer much in terms of the legal theory. But they're very supportive of it because the colonel The kernel of this concept for the PLO at the time and their their strategic thinking is not necessarily that they'll just be able to use force legitimately, but that because they're using force, they are affirming that they are an embryonic sovereign. They are a sovereign in the becoming. And George Abisab offers the clearest way to distinguish legitimate from illegitimate violence. Illegitimate violence is used for personal gain on, on behalf of individuals. Legitimate violence is used for a collective good. And for the PLO to say that they were using it for collective good, they were using it on behalf of the nation and for national liberation for what will become a state of their own. Right? That was
1: nineteen seventy
0: seven.
1: Quick. might want to
2: just note, note the time for QA with the
1: audience. Right. So. so let's have let me have one more. Question. So, today, yep. Given the approach of your book, the, the, both the activism part, the uh, the emphasis on um, political struggle in relation to activism, and the overall situation in Israel Palestine. Speaking to us as activists in the United States, what kind of strategic, what do we, what should we be up to? What does it make sense as a strategy to pursue?
0: Sure. So let me answer this question in a few ways. This is a big answer, right? Because this is also a question about my vision for the future. And like I said, my vision for the future in the book, I don't think it's law-bound. <laughs> As I mentioned, I, I'm drawing from Afrofuturist literature, I'm drawing from indigenous struggles globally to think about freedom and the excess of political sovereignty, okay? So that's, but I'm just gonna put a pin in that because this is about American, you
1: uh, I've asked about American People in the United States, right. yeah,
0: American activists. Um, I think the most important thing to know is that for people in the United States, the United States is not a, you know, just an international, you know, an international third party who's watching this, right? We're not France or Uganda or Thailand or Malaysia watching this. We are a pillar. We are a central pillar and a player in this ongoing struggle for freedom and the denial of it. And we have played that role since 1967. In the aftermath of the First World War, most peoples of the Middle East saw the United States as a great alternative to colonizing Europe and saw hope in it in the United States. But after 1967, the U.S. changes its policy, and we've not switched from this policy change when we realize that Israel can be a significant Cold War asset in our Cold War, Middle East Cold War. And so switch up a policy of stalemate to basically make Israel and the Arab monarchies um, at, um, you know, where there's no peace but no war. Switch up that policy to ensure two things. One, that Israel will always have a qualitative military edge, which means that we will provide Israel with the military aid necessary for it to defeat any Arab army on its own or all of them put together. Which is why our military aid to Israel now is more than um, what we offer all of sub-Saharan Africa and, the Middle East, uh, and Latin America combined. It's why the Obama administration increased, even as it um, abstained on Resolution 2334, condemning settlements, why it increased military aid to Israel from three billion a year to 3.8 billion a year over a 10-year period, right? We are continuing in that legacy. Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter, right? This is a bipartisan issue. We are part of the problem. The other part of the problem and the other pillar that we established since 1967, which which was, and this was enshrined in Resolution 242, which is basically a land for peace framework where we basically said Israel will return lands that it occupied in 1967 in exchange for permanent peace. Notwithstanding all of the empirical evidence that we have available that has demonstrated that Israel is not going to give the land back, they've told us that. Last week, Netanyahu promised his constituents that as as an electoral promise to annex the Jordan Valley. They annexed the Golan Heights. They're annexing Jerusalem. They're not going to give it back, and yet we're still committed to this Land for Peace framework, despite the empirical evidence. And in commitment to that, have prevented the application of any form of international legal accountability in the Security Council and have issued nearly... I want to say 42 because I'm going to undershoot, but it might be 44 vetoes between 1967 and the present to protect Israel from international accountability at the Security Council. Nora? Uh, yes?
1: Um, I propose to ask you one more, pre- make a more you want a precise very specific response? question, and then for two, for two minutes. You talk for two minutes, and then we'll go to the audience for 10 minutes. So the room has to be vacated at 1 o'clock. So that'll allow a little bit of time for people to react. <laughs> so, um, to put it bluntly, you say here, and you've just said, the two state solution is dead. So, what do American progressives advocate as their solution if the two state solution no longer exists? Are we one state? Are we advocate for a one state solution or what?
0: Okay. Here's the answer. I'm going to give you a list. Ready? Here's the list. Here's the prescription. <laughs> um, I, I problematize the one-state solution in the book. The two-state solution is dead, but I problematize the one-state solution because I think that it's a slogan right now and we haven't really excavated what that means, right? Is it... Basically, a Palestinian sovereign state with strong minority protections for a Jewish minority. Is it a binational state where Jews and Palestinians have the right to return and have belonging, which was a proposal? What does this look like? So I problematized the one-state solution to say that I think it's part of the future and whatever we do, it's not the end because we need to create something that's beyond the state altogether. So that's my non-answer. But here's what Americans can do anyway as taxpayers. One, it is... There is a principle of do no harm. And what we're doing in the Middle East is a tremendous amount of harm as a result of our taxpayer money. So it is our duty, it is our duty to impose sanctions on Israel military weapon sanctions at the very least. And because of the intran- diplomatic intransigence and our leaders intransigence globally, then you can participate in boycott and divestment, okay? Um, better yet, what I advocate for, is that what the Palestinians need to do, which is to pivot away completely from the United States. They should have abandoned that path, but because they'd wanted it since 1974 and got it in 1988, it's gonna be really difficult to ask them to give it up. But they should aban- the U.S. should not be part of this at all. It's part of the problem. Number two, annul Oslo. It doesn't matter if you believe in one state, if you believe in two states, if you believe in no states, Oslo is going to get you to where we are today, okay? Oslo laid the seeds to consolidate Israel's uh, territorial takings and for Netanyahu to now take the Jordan Valley, okay? So we have to annul Oslo. It doesn't have anything positive and we can talk about that in my three minutes of Q&A. And then um, number three is we should think seriously about settler decolonization and thinking about settler decolonization involves many things. It involves thinking about how do, how does Jewish, do Jewish Israelis and Palestinians find uh, ways of coexistence that makes our existence mutually reinforcing rather than mutually exclusive? We can both be. But the equation as it's set up right now um, by the application of political Zionism is that Palestinians can't be if Israel is. So how do we recreate an equation where we can all be, right? And then the last word I'll say on this is that the struggle for uh, Palestinian freedom, for the struggle to overcome anti-Semitism, all of our struggles begins here. We are a settler colony, and there is settler decolonization to take place here. What does it mean to recognize our roles as settler sovereigns? What does it mean to struggle against settler colonization, ongoing settler colonization, very vividly and violently in the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example? What does it mean to struggle against entrenched racism, not just in the form of police brutality, but in ways of deeply entrenched anti-black racism that uh, come to constitute many ways that we think about ourselves and think about the rest of the world? And I believe that the, the pathway to freedom for, you know, in solidarity with Palestinians means being committed to that freedom here in the United States. Thank you.
2: So we can take like three rapid fire questions. There's a class here at one o'clock. I'm sorry, there's so much knowledge here, but questions. (laughs) Raise your hand quickly. Sorry, yes. Um, and then and then we're gonna go right after you before we answer, yeah. I'm sitting here. thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this. I'm sitting here from India Occupied Kashmir and I want to ask you about the, the discourse regarding disputed territory and occupied territory. Like, I wanna know what does it take to move the needle because Kashmir is also in that point where it's called disputed territory and not like occupied territory. Like, what do I need to do yeah, people to see it as the yeah, Great okay. question. Uh, yes? Uh, just super quickly, one of the, in advocating for a one-state solution, you sort of rhetorically have to de-emphasize the occupation aspect and emphasize the more apartheid aspects of there being one sovereign where some people don't have rights. But a lot of the legal avenues for accountability right. are sort of occupation and war crimes based. So I'm curious, sort of strategically, can you do two things at
1: once, or do you need to choose?
0: Excellent. That's what I think about all the time. Right. And then one last question.
2: Yeah, the last one is, I, so I lived in Tel Aviv when I was in Israel,
1: um, and I remember walking down the street on Friday in Lisanne and there was uh, an attack in which a semi-automatic rifle was used.
2: Nine people were killed in a bar. I want to know first if you consider that legitimate guerrilla warfare. And the second part question, I hope that's okay is, I served in the
0: idea, I want to know from you if you think I should be prosecuting Great questions. Um, so let me answer that quick, because it's a short answer. I do not consider the targeting of civilians legitimate warfare. And none of the regulations that have ever been created ever permit that. So do I think Palestinians have the right to use force? Yes, but they must use that force responsibly. They have to target military installations. They can target soldiers who sign up to be targeted and sign up to kill and to be killed, and that's different. But civilians are never legitimate targets, not when states do it, not when um, non-state actors do it. So that's that answer. You, it depends on what you did in the IDF. I was a combat paratrooper. So maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah law students, you got a bunch of prospective law students who might sue you, and a bunch of law students who might defend you in this very room. And that's the work that we're doing. That is what struggle looks like. And so hopefully we'll prevail. Okay, in terms of legal <laughs> occupation, and can you do two things at once? You know, that's a really difficult question and one of the things that we struggle with. Because you're right, all of the tools available to us, including the consensus that's been created on these questions, does lead that we have to think about this strictly as occupation. But as the, you know, as the reality shows, there is no occupation necessarily. It's a false partition line, right? It's a false partition line and the perpetuation of it is actually enabling Israel to take those lands under this false notion. So I'm of the opinion that to the extent that we can use this law in order to advance, in order to educate, in order to create, you know, to to educate outside of uh, of the courtroom and in the court of public opinion, then we should use it as useful, but we shouldn't miss the bigger picture. Um, which is the rest of the territory. And Israel's treatment of its Palestinian citizens, who it treats as second-class citizens, who it's enshrined in a permanent state of emergency and racialized governance. We saw that clearly in the elections, and they live in an apartheid situation, and we can't miss out on Gaza. Because in either one, Israel says we're not responsible for Gaza. We're neither occupying it since withdrawing our troops in 2005, nor is it independent. And so it's in it's no man's land. They've created a new category and called it a hostile entity and put it just outside of the entire framework. So it's not enough to use occupation, but I wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But it really, what the, the answer to that question, unfortunately, is a political answer, not a legal answer. And there is a crisis in the absence of politics and what I attribute to the failure of the Palestinian leadership. <laughs> the last question on Kashmir. You're doing the work by the education that's happening right now, the writing, the resilience and the sacrifice of Kashmiris who have been arrested. There is a media blackout. We do not know what's happening. They have been telling us for decades that this is not disputed territory between Pakistan and India. This is about self-determination. They have created alliances. And the only way I think to do that is to also continue building um, in the alliance work to do the writing, to do the knowledge production, to do the legal advocacy, to do the student um, activism that you do, and also it's a a uh, cornerstone of struggle. And I did it!
2: You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner? email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com dot com